This episode of Roderick on the Line is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your own website today at squarespace.com. And remember to enter the very special offer code SUPERTRAIN at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Hello. Hi, John. Hi, Merlin. How's it going? Good. How are you? Woo! I'm fa- you can see me fanning myself like an old uh, Southern lady. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Is it hot uh, down there in California, eh? Oh, John Roderick, you are a caution. <laughs> it's uh, a... No, no. It's, you know, it's like every day. I should... Yeah. You know, you could just take a Sharpie and write 51 on, on uh-huh. the iPhone screen. That's <laughs> mm-hmm. pretty much 51. 51 degrees. 51 yeah. degrees with the with the breeze off the ocean. Yep, yep, yep. Yep. Uh, it's beautiful here in Seattle because, uh, as you know, global warming, which is really climate change, let's it's, be honest. It's climate change. It's we got we to we work on that. Uh, it is turning Seattle into La Jolla, which is, which is wonderful. <laughs> I love that name. La Jolla. Uh, La Jolla, home of Dr. Seuss. Uh, we're going to we're going to have a beautiful bay here that's going to have sea lions in it, and there are going to be a lot of surfers who are very protective of their beach. Mm, locals only. That's right. So uh, so that's what's happening here, and we're having a you know we're having a great time. Property values are skyrocketing, and we are, couldn't be more excited about it. Oh my God! What a great time to be a, a Seattleian! <laughs> oh my goodness! Woo. You we uh, we uh, you know just a minute trivia. We we uh, we were worried what we could work in a recording this week with 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 the holidays and whatnot. And you, mm-hmm. you know what? You know what? You you hit me hit me on my burner. Mm-hmm. I said, "What time and what do I wear?" And that was like mm-hmm. that was ten minutes ago. Boom! I was like, I was pulling into a parking lot, and I was like, you know what's missing in my life? You know what is missing right now is Merlin Man. Oh man, I need this show. And I pinged you. Ping. You know, the thing is, I've started to say, like, I'll ping you. Why don't you ping me? Ping, mm-hmm. ping, ping, ping. And it's surprising how many people get upset about the use of the word ping. They don't like being intransitively pinged. They don't want to. They do not want to ping. They do not want to be pinged. How do you um, ping is nice in one way. Um, ping is nice because it exists uh, without respect to how one pings. So nice. that could be a call, could be an email, could be a text, and and then it has the attendant problems of not having that specificity. But I'm not uh, of geez, Louise, of of all the the stupid stuff that people say, I ping is far from my biggest right now. Well, I, the the reason I use ping, mm-hmm. uh, not just because of its association with a with a very famous panda bear, but also uh, because of Tom Clancy. Uh, one ping only, Vasily. <laughs> I finally saw that. And I'm one so glad. One ping only. It's like yes, one ping only. Well, <laughs> let me let me um, may I ask a question. Mm-hmm. Thank you, um, uh, first time caller. The um, in the process of going, I mean, we probably should get straight to the campaign. Oh, geez, wow. Well, I don't know. We we can we can save it for later. I have a lot. To, I have a lot to talk about. I have, save have it a, for later. Ding, Boy, by the way, your uh, Anthony Kiedis impersonation was impeccable. Shama number ho! A suck a lock a wow wow! Biggle ding, biggle ding, biggle boondo! I think he does with his arms. That's just disturbing. When um, you think about when you think about the, I mean, I, I sometimes try to put myself into Anthony Kiedis and see the world through those eyes and imagine the life that he led, and I just I I feel so warm. 
Okay, I'll write something down here. Um, okay, but anyway, so you want to jump? You want to jump right in? Go ahead. Uh, well, I also want to out myself a little bit because for what I'm, I'm gonna call the autumn of 1988, mm-hmm. I really liked the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Mm-hmm. Mother's Milk. Yeah. If you see me getting mighty, if you see me getting high, right? Knock me down. Knock me down. It was, I'm he, not he, bigger than life. I'm not bigger that than was, life. That was good shit. It was really good. It had it had the. Uh, the truck driver key change uh, toward the end, but I don't mind that. I think they earned it. Yeah, they did. And, you know, that was that's one of the things about rock and roll, right? You, you, a band comes up, you're like, this is interesting. This is novel. Who, who knows which direction white rap is going to go? Mm-hmm. It could go a lot of ways. And it seemed like this, this might be the way. I mean, you know, funk and uh, punk, they sound a lot alike. They are. They're very similar in that, Two in great that sense. Tastes. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a there was a quite a while there where like uh, like funky punk or punky funk seemed like it might be the might be the way to go. I mean, I remember very distinctly in early 1991 telling everybody I knew that this like sludgy, dumb, heavy rock thing was really yesterday's news and what was what the the music of the future was going to be was upbeat jangly pop and i was correct (laughs) but it took 10 years of sludgy grunge to get to upbeat jangly pop well yeah i mean with the red hot chili peppers it was such a weird thing because they were um they were kind of their own thing for a while they they had the reputation for being naked and and wearing Mm -hmm. socks on their johnsons and stuff Mm -hmm. like that uh, and that record in before some ways, Hillel died. Well, yeah, right. That's why he wants to be knocked down. Yes, I think that was a shame. That was a shame. Was a shame. But um, we uh, traveled uh, out of town for the weekend, and uh, in Sacramento, uh, man, they've got a radio station there that I, I didn't even realize how much I wish we had here. <laughs> which was it was like one hundred one point one, I think it was, and it was, I, you know, a lot of the like. Um, more the, the urban and urban stations will have like the throwbacks. You have like a disco weekend. They had like it was all like nineties, mostly nineties uh, hip hop, yes. and it was amazing. Good stuff. And it was a lot of stuff that I was kind of tangentially aware of because my I, I had peak hip hop in probably nineteen eighty nine or ninety, where I was just it was like almost all I listened to it was like that and Pixies was like and Dinosaur. That's like all I listened to, mm-hmm. and but I you know <clears throat> I, I wasn't like buying it. I think I bought the House of Pain cassette was like the last <laughs> rap thing that I bought. But it was it was so crazy though cuz like song after song after song, a lot of these songs I had only heard sampled. Yes. Like but but stuff I hadn't heard in years like the ching 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 mm-hmm. Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg song. Like that's a pretty mm-hmm. good song. It is. Or, or like uh what uh Far Side? I forgot about Far Side. <laughs> they were really good. Uh-huh. And what was what was the Far Side was killer. They, and there was a while where Far Side felt like that was the future. The far side was going to be the future. They were like almost like picking up the mantle of De La Soul mm-hmm. and like you know and what else? Oh, you know what else? They play in the uh, the uh, Kanye West, Kanye West, that Gold Digger song. That's a great tune. Mm-hmm. Or the first Lauren Hill solo record. That's that's a bona fide classic. Super classic. Funny part is though. Here's the funny part. So the signal starts fading. I'm like, mm, you know, we flip mm-hmm. around <laughs> as you drive, yeah. And you know what we heard. Um, <laughs> Everything, every, all of the words about this particular band make me laugh. Marcy Playground oh, came sure. on. Oh, sure. And I, I guess I didn't realize when... Harvey uh, Danger Contemporaries. 
Yes, in the year that didn't exist, 1997. That's right. They had a... Do <laughs> you remember their hit? I want candy, right? That's male sex and candy. <laughs> really? You do? Uh, it, smells I, to I me was, like, it smells to me like you, have a, like you have a CD of Nirvana Unplugged is what you smell. <laughs> yeah, I, had, I shared a, uh, a shuttle bus ride with those guys one time from the hotel to the, to the festival. And uh, I find that I found them to be very smirky. Oh no, I'm sorry unlikable. to hear that. Yeah, they were smirky. Well, my only point being, it's it's funny how like Madeline and I we heard that song and we're like, you know, it's mm-hmm. it really sounds kind of a lot like, like Nirvana. Nirvana unplugged. Uh, Nirvana unplugged specifically, yeah. and we're like, God, when when was this? Like, was this what is this like 93, 94? 97. 97. The they year were, that didn't exist. The year that didn't exist. They were that was still happening. Yeah. Yeah, and it, well, was, it was not nearly as fresh as like uh, you know Dr. Dre impugning that you you know not not forget about him. Well, and I mean, I, I I'm I'm actually like literally having a music um, stroke right now. Well, I just yeah. I just said impugn when I meant uh, importune. Importune. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not sure I'm much better. <laughs> I feel like. <laughs> I think I popped the stack on my thesaurus a little well, bit. Well, because ever since you mentioned it, I've been just sitting here with the with the with the constant repeat of "Those who break the law go straight to the house of pain." It's just been shouting in my dun, head, dun, and, and I, don't, I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember having having earmarked such a loud little place in my brain for that to to be stored. It's but like now the that sarlacc. It's the sarlacc eats you and then like digests you like over like a thousand years, yeah. five thousand years. Like there are these little people that the sarlacc of my mind ate that I've completely forgotten were being digested, and then suddenly it comes popping up, and you go, "Oh my god!" It's just it's like you're there again. I had one of those this morning on the as I was coming into town. I saw under a bridge there was a uh, a homeless person had built a little sort of enclosure for themselves out of tarps and and bags and shopping carts and so forth and they had a bicycle uh chained to uh, to the to the handle of one of the carts that was supporting their their pretty elaborate housing construction mm-hmm. and the bicycle was a a very old specialized that was a bike i had once owned and as i drove past i just caught a glimpse of this bike and i r- suddenly had this flashback to 1987 it was early days of mountain bikes and i wanted to buy a mountain bike and i had a fr- but i didn't have any money so i had a friend who had a friend who had a a cabin up at big lake in alaska which is quite a ways from anchorage up to big lake big lake was where all the like all the rich kids, their dads all had cabins on Big Lake and you could fly up there in a float plane or you could drive up there. And it was one of the few lakes you could drive to, right? Most lakes you couldn't, but Big Lake was accessible. And it was where the jet skiing happened and the water skiing and so forth. So I drive up to Big Lake with my friend Sheffer. Sheffer knows a guy who's got a mountain bike for sale. And I get up there and it's this specialized, which was not, properly a mountain bike but it was one of those early early bikes or so wasn't it a, i remember being a pretty not cheap and pretty hardy road bike well it was so this was this had stand-up handlebars it was built to look like a mountain bike but it was 
very, very upright riding position. And I think it was, it was before, I, I don't know if you remember this, but early days of mountain biking, there was a lot of question about what the frame geometry was going to eventually look like for mountain bikes. There were, there was some argument that, uh, that you spend more time riding uphill than down. So the frame geometry should reflect a riding position that was like level if you were climbing. And there were a lot of different radical design ideas in early mountain bikes before it all kind of settled down to, to the overall general frame. And this was like, this was actually probably best described as a dad bike, <laughs> but to my mid eighties eyes, it looked like a mountain bike because it had these cues, these visual cues, the, the straight handlebars, the knobby tires, the few other things, you know, Shimano components, all these things that I was excited about. And so the guy only wanted a hundred bucks for it because he had bought himself a proper mountain bike. And this was just a bike for riding around town, but I didn't know the difference. And I rem I remember Buying the, so, but anyway, the first thing we did before any of the, the negotiation, before any transaction happened, the first thing we did was we all smoked a ton of pot. And then we were all really baked. <laughs> and this was at an age, I mean, I was always very strongly affected by pot. And, and I would get so stoned that I could not function in any, in any right way. I would just I would I would become in, incapacitated by being too high. And I hate that. We got stoned and then we're negotiating a transaction which I could not I could not handle my half of it. And then I, I he said, you know, like here's the bike, it's 100 bucks and I was like dug And he said, "Do you want to take it for a test ride?" and I was like, you know, yes. And I got on the bike and not understanding how mountain bikes worked, not ever having been on one, I assumed that you could just drive anywhere on it. And so I, I, I rode 15 feet up the road, off the road into the ditch, into what was four feet of standing tractor mud. <laughs> and in my mind's eye, I saw myself floating across the top of this tractor mud. You sound like a meme. On my new, like, Is it as bad as it sounded? <laughs> It's worse. On, on top of my new super mountain bike, I was just going to like go through this stuff, uh, just just floating on top of it like a like a superstar. And I went right into this tractor mud, endoed over the handlebars, just into the like into the mud so that you could only see the tips of my shoes and the end of my nose. And you have to know that these guys up at Big Lake. They were like true Alaskan mountain bike bro, like water ski dudes. And Sheffer was too. You know, they all had Birkenstocks. They all knew, knew about all this stuff, right? And so I'm already, I'm already repping that I can't hold my weed because I'm too baked. And everybody can tell I'm too baked. And I don't know anything about mountain bikes. And then I go over the handlebars into them. I just, I rode down the hill into a thing where any normal, sensible person would have looked and said, what are you doing, dude? Don't go down. What do you think? And then just splat, right? And they're, it's not that they're trying not to laugh. <laughs> it is, it's so stupid. It isn't even funny. 
Like they, they're not, it's not that they're laughing. They are, they are seriously like, what is wrong with this person? And then I, they, they get me out of the mud. They clean me off. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> and then they said, somehow we're all standing around, right? And we're going to go, I think, I think, <laughs> although now I'm wet and cold, we're going to go out on their boat for a minute and somehow I screw up their boat. Like I got in the boat wrong. I, I, I sat in the driver's seat and turned on the engine and didn't, <laughs> there wasn't any gas in it or I burnt suddenly the, like the, the boat is the boat motor is smoking and everybody's yelling at me and I don't, I'm not proud of my performance that day. And I remember that I remember these guys looking at me and like one of them saying like, you're, you're like the dumbest guy I've ever met. And <laughs> what's amazing about it is that those guys are still alive probably. They're no older than I am. They're in the world somewhere. These two guys in their mid-40s probably living in Alaska. And if my name comes up in conversation, those two guys have, a, have one really fantastic story about what an idiot I am. And they're not wrong. I, I, I am, in, in that respect, the dumbest guy either of those two guys has ever met. So that was what I was, that, that was my little, like, I'm glad to know that I stored that whole very hazy story somewhere in my head to come out at the suggestion of this specialized bike that I caught out of the corner of my eye. Oh, and that so that and that all just came flashing back. It all just the entire thing, and you know, and I'm I think I'm I think I'm confusing it with another time that Peter Nosek and I went up to Big Lake, and and uh, also got into trouble. Pretty much every time I went to Big Lake, I got in trouble with somebody, and I realized I needed to just stop going to Big Lake. It wasn't that was not ever going to be my scene. Mm-hmm. I went to a party at a cabin one time at Big Lake and I showed up and they were all the people that had gone to my high school, but they were all the beautiful ones. And for whatever reason that day, for some other reason, I'm not sure why, but I chose to wear a tuxedo and I showed up at this lake cabin where everyone else is in bikinis and jams. You remember jams? Of course I do. Yeah. Everybody was in jams and bikinis and they're all jumping off the dock and they're all like jet skiing and having (laughs) sex with each other. They're in an Alaskan version of like beach blanket bingo and and you're, you're in the, in the rat pack. And I'm there and I'm, you know, and I'm like, I'm probably 25 pounds over my, my normal weight and I'm wearing a brown tuxedo (laughs) and, you know, and I had long hair and it was just like, People were walking. You sound like Brian Wilson. (laughs) I I looked like Brian Wilson, but I didn't have the good sense to either stay in the car or drive back to the town or whatever. I walked right down on the dock, and so I'm standing on the dock. I'm standing on the dock. It's an Abercrombie and Fitch ad all around me, and it was one of those things. I used to. This used to be true all the time. My mere presence in the scene bummed everyone else out. Like my <laughs> oh, come mere, on, really? My mere presence there made sure that no one was going to have sex that afternoon <laughs> because everybody suddenly lost the mood. And so, the you know, like all the dude bros were looking at me like, dude, just like get out of here or something. Like just go, I don't know, go for a walk down the dirt road or something. And I'm like, what do you mean? I, <laughs> oh, and I was also smoking 
and uh, you know, and probably like drinking whiskey out of a milk bottle, like <laughs> everything, everything about me was meant for an for a for a, another place, and and probably a place that did not exist, maybe a place that would never exist. Oh God, it's so brutal. All I had to do was just see this this bicycle on the street today, and it's all there. It's all waiting for me. And there's nobody there who would kind of pull you aside and go, you know. You need to a couple of these interesting affectations and things. You might want to just maybe leave those on the counter next time. Nobody could. Nobody could because because there wasn't a single other person at the party. I mean, my friend Peter loved to take me places where he could turn me loose. <laughs> like the elephant man. <laughs> he 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 loved he loved, you know, Peter was always Peter was was he had a good sense of what to do, how, how to handle himself. He was not like ever the chicest person but he knew how to be at any party and seem like he belonged there all oh, right um and but peter loved to roll me into places and turn me loose and it was and and, and people at the party would be like who inv- who invited this gorilla and it, and you know and peter was happy to claim responsibility but but Never, but somehow was able also to disavow all my crimes, right? So he could he could take credit for having brought this monster to the party, but it was not his. It was, but I mean, he got chased out of a lot of parties too. Uh, but but as my as, as my chaperone. But it's also it's different to. I don't know. I, maybe it's a different kind of thing, but I feel like there's this certain kind of feeling where, um, and I, I mean, I had, when I, especially with like junior high and some of high school, I was so freaking weird because I kind of wanted to be weird, but I didn't realize that the look I was coming up with wasn't really pulled together too well. And it combined too many disparate elements. And, you know, there's, it's, it's sort of like, I always felt like I never quite knew how to comb my hair to make it look like other people's hair. Even when I wore what, you know, theoretically the same kinds of clothes as other people, it didn't look right. I still look like me. It just, <laughs> and, and like, it's one, I, I just, I would kill for that ability to just be an average person at an event oh, and, and not feel like a, like a bizarre social experiment. Me too. And particularly when, when young people started to make out with each other and want to go make out with each other and want to go have sex with each other, like, I had a perverse pride in being the the last man standing, right? <laughs> you're in a you're in a room and everybody goes off into the into the dark back corners. It's like you won the saddest game of musical chairs. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sitting out there, you know, I'm sitting out there going through the their parents' jazz LPs going, "Wow, this is a very rare record." <laughs> This this is an extremely rare album. We heard you, John. Hello? <laughs> we heard you. Hello? <laughs> and it was it never felt it never felt uh uh I ne- because because then, you know, when I started to hang out with weirdos, I hoped that the weirdos would that that I'd find my, found my people. But of course, that's not true either, you know. I, there's still there's still like an ethos and a methodology even to being a weirdo, like being a weirdo in the in the right way. Yeah, yeah. And the weirdos want to go make out with each other, um, and I desperately wanted to go make out with somebody. I just did not know how to affect that. I ne- I never felt like I had any access to that. I mean, people who would just meet at a party and make out and then go their separate ways. I mean, I might as well have like wanted to sprout wings that seemed so foreign to me yeah 
Yeah, particularly when you could be arguing about LBJ in the uh, well, and and a lot of times arguing about LBJ in the mirror <laughs> because you couldn't find anybody else to argue about LBJ with you. And the few, you know the few times when I would be at a party, there would be an attractive woman there. We would start talking. We would start talking about LBJ. She would be really smart on the topic of LBJ. Uh, that it made it somehow even worse. I would I would have to throw myself off the balcony to get away from this fascinating, charming woman who wanted to talk about LBJ with me. So in that case, you you might have just been like a temporary safe harbor at the party, like somebody she could talk to and not feel hassled or not feel you know. Well, no, she was she had finally found someone to talk to about LBJ too. Oh my god, that makes it more tragic and all the more tragic that then I had to run out. And as I was running out. The last decision I made as I was running out of the house was to steal everybody's shoes. <laughs> right? So it was never – I never even just ran out. I also took everybody's shoes and then was remembered for the rest of the – so weird. The rest of the, the year, right, as the, the, that fucking guy who, who stole everybody's shoes at the party. The fat guy in a brown tuxedo who stole everybody's, who stole everybody's shoes. He was, you know, he was talking to that other weird girl for a long time, and then he stole everybody's <laughs> shoes, including hers. Like, didn't even, and didn't do anything with them, just put them in the trunk of his car and drove around with them for a year. <laughs> like, there's just no, I, I, have to, I have to say that it's because I went to kindergarten when I was four. Yeah. And if I had waited a year, maybe my whole life would be different. Maybe I would have been so much better if I had just spent that extra year being a kid, you 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 uh you may be kidding, but I, I think about that a lot, mm-hmm. and it it was instrumental in our decision to uh, have our kid uh, hold back. We redshirted her uh, for am, a year. I am powerfully not kidding. I feel like if I had been, if I had gone, if I because there were kids. I mean, I had a good friend in high school who was in eleventh grade when I was in twelfth grade, and he and I had the exact same birthday, and yeah, yeah. he was. Rico Suave in his own grade. Um, and I was, I mean, by, by senior year, I had figured out a way to be uh, part, of the, part of the culture and part of the class and to be somebody who mattered. But, uh, but I was not ever mature enough to, uh, to play the reindeer games. You know what I mean? Oh, I do. And, but you think about like even just like a normal – I think about – I've told you before, I think, I, I really see this in fifth graders at my kid's school because hmm. it's, you know, it's kindergarten to fifth grade. And the thing is the the standard deviation on maturity in fifth graders is nothing short of mind-boggling. There are a couple couple guys, but especially there are like these three girls who are obviously like in charge of the school. And two of these girls are taller than I am <laughs> and they look about 16 and they're in fifth grade. And then, of course, there are there are a lot of kids that are just random kids with boogers. And then there are some fifth graders. My daughter, my daughter is taller than, and she's yeah. in first grade. It's it's so you think about that. Just even if even taking that into account, but then imagine adding or subtracting a year from that, and you can see how completely bananas that can get. You so, know, if, so if, if if it if it you know weighs against you, the wrong. The funny thing is, like my kid, this is her last week of school. She's in f- ending first grade this week, and this is her fifth year of being in school, which I sometimes think about, and I think how how strange and different that is than when I was a kid, where she had three years of preschool, 
we we had her do a graduate year in preschool, and uh, that that was the year we you know said hey you know still we love this place we really like this place. She was kind of shy, you know, and we thought I you know my do- my uh, my wife started school on the early side. I started school on the late side, and we both agreed that I had the better deal. <laughs> Uh-huh. Everybody I know who started later, I, you know, and I think there's a thing today of like, oh, you should push your kid harder, put your tiny little four-year-old in kindergarten, whatever. That's everybody's personal choice. Like if your kid can read really well and they're four, well, it seems like a no-brainer. Don't hold them back. But I think about that now and like it's like when I was a kid, uh, this, uh, I mean, let's be honest. You stayed at home with your mom mostly or with yeah. a family member. I did not know that many kids who weren't Catholic that went to school before kindergarten. Almost all the Catholic kids went to uh, preschool. Or nursery school, as they called it then. Yeah. But, but I mean, so much, I mean, now I think about, oh my God, it's no wonder I was such a weirdo. I was at home with my mom all day and, and playing my, playing my own little personal reindeer games and talking into the mirror about LBJ. And then, uh, hey, here I am. And I was a good reader and stuff. Like I was a smart kid, but I show up in fifth grade and I was like, you know, I remember just feeling like, Everybody here, I've said this before also, but I really feel like everybody here got a manual that I didn't get. I have no idea how to conduct myself with these other kids. I have no idea how to, how to s- scrap for status, even in kindergarten. And now, I mean, it's weird because, I mean, the, the truth is that those three years of school were a really good thing for my kid because she showed up in kindergarten and she kind of already knew, like, how a day goes. Uh-huh. It seems like – it seems. I mean, I'm not criticizing, but, like, that's – I mean, I don't know. I feel like I could have used that. I really could have used a remedial course on how to be a little kid. And that oh. would have that would help for the beginning. My God. A, yeah, a, a remedial course on how to be a little kid. I think I still would have benefited from it my second year in college. Oh. Well, you know, the thing is, you're kind of, by the time, I'm, I'm, these are broad numbers here, but I think by the time, if you've got a relatively stable home life, and like a relatively, you know, stable, normal public school, I think by third or fourth grade, most kids know how stuff should work. Like yeah. you pick up an awful lot when you're a little kid. And if you choose to do something different from what's expected of you, you do so with full knowledge of, of what the consequences or, yeah. you know, ups or downs of that are. But I think there's a latent period where you get you just get so goofy for a while. And then maybe you, you come back and maybe like, oh, you know, sophomore year of high school, like I kind of got it together or whatever. Like every kid's different. But you're totally right. Second year of college is a bloodbath. I feel like <clears throat> I feel like my sophomore year in high school was the first one where I started to kind of get it together. But I re- I remember in grade school there were two two kids. One when I was in grade school in Seattle, like fourth grade, and he was he was small, but the girls loved him, and he was you know quiet and smooth and cool, right? He uh, he was like the kid. In Bad News Bears that uh, drove the motorcycle. Mm-hmm. He, wasn't a, he wasn't bad. He wasn't good. He was cool. Oh, in, man. In fourth grade. I can't. Oh, God. And I was big even then and loud even then. And uh, I remember going over to his house a couple of times. He was nice to me, but there was, there was cool in him that was never going to rub off on me. And he was comfortable in it. He was comfortable with fourth grade girls, but he wasn't, you know, he wasn't playing with them. He wasn't playing house with them. He was already cool enough that they had crushes on him. 
a whole different a whole different concept. Like he's, he, but it sounds like he's got a certain kind of like surprising amount of agency. Yeah. Yep. He was, you know, he like talked to his parents. I don't. I'm not sure if he called his parents by their first names, but it felt like that in his home. And there was just like a, he was just self-possessed in a way that I wouldn't be for decades. And then when I moved to Alaska, there was a, another little boy. He was very small compared to me. And, you know, like his name was Brian Namini. And uh, Lori Basler loved Brian Namini. And I loved Lori Basler. And there was this, there was this terrible, it caused me to not like Brian Namini, even though Brian Namini was perfectly good to me and made no, he made no overture to Lori Basler. He just was himself cool and small and blonde and had long straight hair parted in the middle that he combed with a goody comb. And he was good at roller skating, but he was just, he didn't, he wasn't pushy. He was just cool. And I couldn't understand. I mean, I could very much understand what Lori Basler saw in him. I couldn't understand how to make myself be, be different. <laughs> and just, just, and, and you know, and, and the girl who liked me was Chris Fayette. And Chris Fayette had headgear and, <laughs> Big freckles. Mm. And when I think about it now, I should have just loved Chris Fayette. That would have made everything so much better for me in my life. But I couldn't love Chris Fayette. I had to love Lori Basler. Lori Basler has a very crushable name. Uh. <coughs> this episode of Roderick on the Line is brought to you by Squarespace. You can start building your very own Squarespace site today by visiting squarespace.com. Remember when you check out, always use that offer code SUPERTRAIN for 10% off. Gang, I have been using Squarespace for over five years now. I think they're just the greatest. If you haven't given Squarespace a try, here's what you have to look forward to. All of their sites look professionally designed. Regardless of your skill level, there is no coding required. All of the tools are so intuitive and easy to use, a wonderful drag-and-drop interface. Squarespace has state-of-the-art technology powering your site. It ensures security and stability. Squarespace is trusted by millions of people, some of the most respected brands in the world. The crazy part is Squarespace sites start at $8 a month, and you even get a free domain name if you sign up for a year, which I can totally recommend. John and I have used Squarespace to host Roderick on the line for three years, and they've been just great to work with, totally seamless. We would love it if you would give them a try, too. So please go start your free trial today. No credit card required. Just visit squarespace.com. When you're ready to sign up, for Squarespace, make sure to use the very special offer code SUPERTRAIN and you will get 10% off your first purchase. Our thanks to Squarespace for making the web so beautiful and for supporting Roderick on the line. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Lori Basler. Like me and uh, Carrie Colomer. Isn't that a crushable name? Carrie Colomer. Yeah, she had a twin sister, Sherry. Sherry and Carrie Colomer. Carrie and Sherry Colomer. C-A-R-I. Oh, my God. You, you don't even know how many times I wrote the name Carrie Colomer over and over. I can I can only imagine. Uh, I feel like I got this close, like this close, but I, I just I don't I wasn't in I wasn't in her league, and you know, and the, the thing is, what we're describing partly is you you have this you get this certain stink on you, 
maybe not in the literal sense, but there's a certain kind of like when you talk about cool, like we, you know, who's a paragon of cool? Maybe Miles Davis. Like, what is cool? Cool is like you say, agency uh, being self possessed, and it, it's not. It's not that the thing is acting like a hipster doofus who's really negative about everything is is a kind of a reflection or shadow of cool. But mm-hmm. the real cool is somebody who's their own person. That's mm-hmm. to me. That's what cool is. I mean, t- Captain Beefheart is cool in in his way. There's a lot of people who are really cool. Like, but I mean, like the thing. But is, in that sense, you and I are very cool. <laughs> that's it's, right, the mascara snake. <laughs> it's just, it's just that that kind of cool in fifth grade. That's why I still refuse to put on headphones when I record. I just listen to the vibrations. But but you know but the, here's the thing what I'm trying to get at is that like uh to, in my parlance like I spent so many years trying to solve the wrong problem. Hmm. Like the problem that I wanted to solve was why can't I make girls like me? Or like you know it starts out as simple as like why don't why aren't all girls into me? Like I you know I I have lots of trading cards and I'm really cool. But then that becomes this more like functional like how do I get girls to like me? Which is like a, a in so many ways like a horrible. It's an understandable question, but it's not the right question. Like the 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 right question, which would never occur to me for many years, was like, how do I become a more interesting version of myself? Like, how do I actually increase my? Now I sound like I'm in the seduction community. How do I incre- <laughs> increase my value? I guess like, but you know what I'm saying? Like, what you really learn? You got to nick people. You got you've got you've got the <laughs> even if you're even if you're working with a six and you don't have a wingman, uh-huh. you really want to get in there and neg. Uh, you're neg. learning. You're learning, John. Neg them. But, you know, but, I, th- I think in my, in my case, the thing that I needed to learn, and the thing that I still uh, that I that my whole life I needed to learn, was just shh. Oh God, leave it. Shh, leave it. Shh. And I just needed to learn that when I was four, when I was fourteen, when I was forty. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but 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 yeah, okay, okay. Uh, no, 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 I know, I know, but but. Yeah, okay. If I could have just ever, ever, ever <laughs> managed to just shush, 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 everything would have been fine. I just couldn't. I didn't have any shushing. <laughs> I, had a, I had a very wise, uh, wise uh, partner at one point, and um, she she said something about about makeup. She said, "Here's the thing: take out take out all the makeup you want to use, put it on the counter, and then put half of it away." And that's how much makeup you should use, right? And that goes for so many things in the physical world. That goes for hair gel. That goes for alcohol. That goes for so many things. Take out all you think you want and then put away half and just use that half and stick with it. And, like, it, it, that is so true, like, in life, you know? Like, because part of it is, like, when you go when you go to a party, like, you can, you can have the brown tuxedo or you can have the milk bottle full of whiskey or you can steal the shoes, <laughs> <laughs> but you don't want to be a carny, right? <laughs> right? Some of it is like, you're right, though. It's a simmer it down, you know? Just slow your roll a little bit. And, like, you don't, like, I'm talking to me now. Like, you don't have to tell them everything you know about the making of Tommy. So let's keep some of that for later. You don't have to talk about everything you know about Tom Seaver. Like, let it, you know, let's, let's sit on that and you'll have more to talk about next time. Yeah. Yeah, for me, I think it was, well, obviously, I do not. I do not look like an Abercrombie and Fitch model. And so I'd better wear this brown tuxedo because that is a very, very good armor. Uh, it's super armor against anybody ever wanting me to take off my clothes and jump in the water. 
And I also hate being in a brown tuxedo at a swimming party. So I had better be drinking whiskey uh, in copious amounts. Mm. But I'm not just going to stand around drinking whiskey. I'm going to drink whiskey out of a milk bottle because fuck the world. And uh, then I'm going to steal everybody's shoes because I'm really in pain. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in a lot of pain. And I and all I can think of to do is steal their shoes because I can't you know I can't fight them all. There's there's a <clears throat> a distinction that lots of people make in different ways, and I, I know I really differ from a lot of my 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 good smart friends in this one way. But I've always I've come to feel that one distinction between being a geek and being a nerd, uh, it may have to do with topic, but I think it has to do with degree and self-awareness in some ways like and, and you know not that it's an important distinction but in my head it's one thing to be uh, a geek about something like you're kind of a geek about lbj right mm. you could be a geek about tom Seaver. like you're somebody who has um maybe like even a, like a surpassingly high level of interest expertise and knowledge but especially interest about that thing but you know you really want to talk about it but that by itself doesn't make you a nerd. I think what makes you a nerd in you know the negative connotation is that having a, an insensitivity to how much other people care about your geeky topic, and like that—that's the part where you go from being you know and come up with any kind of disparaging name you want. But it's one thing to be really into stamp collecting and nobody ever finds out, and it's it's another thing to like buttonhole somebody at a party and tell them about you know, every kind of stamp that you've ever seen and what it's called and correct them when they get something wrong and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and it's, it's really, I think it can be very difficult. I don't know if you see any of yourself in that, but that's de definitely what's true for me. And, and, and as a fellow digger in John Roderick, I, you might appreciate, I think part of it is like when you get pushback from somebody, your inclination is not to go, Oh, that's a good note. I should, I should, uh, I should leave it. It's more like you dig in even further. Like you haven't made your case yet. Like, that's what I do. And so now I'm like, no, no, okay, well, I'm sorry, I probably didn't explain this well. Let me really explain the Tom Seaver situation to you. <laughs> and that's when, that's, when you become, that's when you become a nuisance mm. because you're insensitive to what else is happening in the room. And now you're no longer uh, self-possessed. Now you're just a weirdo. You know, <clears throat> years later, or maybe it was years earlier, I, I don't remember. I'm, I'm, I'm getting confused now. But no, it was about the same time. Wait a minute. What, yeah. what, what are we talking about here? We're talking about like late 80s? Late Mid 80s. Okay. I was downtown in Anchorage on a beautiful summer day. And when, when Anchorage is in full flower in the spring and summer, there's really no more beautiful place because there are hanging baskets of flowers everywhere. It's part of Anchorage's uh, it's part of Anchorage's identity that when spring comes, everyone hangs baskets of flowers everywhere. And so you have just this proliferation of flowers. And because the sun is up all day, like flowers just go crazy. And so I'm, I was downtown. I was walking on 4th Avenue, right by the 4th Avenue Theater, right by, you know, right in the center of town. And I bumped into some friends and I'm standing and talking to them and a little group of people gathered there and we're, we're all out of high school now. We're in college and we feel like the young people who are the next generation of, of uh, young folks. And this um, girl that went to a different school but whom I'd met at debate uh, competitions. She went to Diamond High School 
Her name was Debbie. And she was the star of the Diamond debate team. And she comes along and, and we were all standing there and, and chatting with one another. And, and she was with a friend of a friend. And so, it's a, you know, we're a group of people in our, <clears throat> I mean, we're probably 20, right? And Debbie Smith and I start talking and we break off from the rest of the group. And Debbie Smith is half, she's, she, was, she is uh, half Japanese and very, 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 very smart person that I, I had always been impressed with her at debate meets. She was like very together. And I was very unimpressive at debate meets because I debated kind of like I talk to you now, which is to say with no preparation. Uh, but I understood Robert's rules of order, but beyond that, I believed <laughs> that I could debate any topic just on the, you know, like flip a coin and go style. Uh, Debbie was very prepared and she and I like wandered off from this group and pretty soon we had arranged to go on a date and we went on a date to see the movie Born on the Fourth of July. So whenever that movie came out, that is when this is happening. Yeah, it feels like 1988 or so. Somewhere around there. Yeah. And then she and I, then we had a good time on the date, and we went on a second date, and the entire time I'm thinking, what is going on here? Debbie Smith is one of the um, very, very popular together people. And then I realized that she went to Diamond, so she didn't know anything about me, and somehow... To her, I seemed like one of the one of the good people. I seemed like one of the Abercrombie and Fitch people, maybe, or it was very confusing. But I really enjoyed her. I was just overthinking it, you know. Uh, that this is one of those moments where somebody should have just said, "Shh, just right. shh, just be, just be with Debbie Smith." Because as much as you're aware that it's a fresh start, you're also still kind of mentally recalibrating, like, don't screw this up like you've screwed this up Don't before. screw this up. Do yeah. not screw that. You're going to screw this up. And then she and I, like, liked each other, and we made out, and we made out again. And then it was wonderful. And, there was this, and this was happening in the summer, so what could be better? And then she invited me to a party at her house. And I was like... I can't wait, you know. Of course I'll come to the party. And I came to the party, and I believe that I probably wore a bow tie because it was a party. And I was a, pers I, I was a person who understood that if you were invited to a party, you wear a bow tie at this time. And I showed up, and all of the fashionable people were there. And when I arrived, it was clear that none of them realized that I knew Debbie Smith there was no reason I would have known her. And, they, and so, honestly, I got out of my car and I bumped into a guy I'd known for years and he had a look on his face and then said, just, it, he blurted out, like, what are you doing here? Mm. Like, how did you get in here? And I was like, uh, and, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm Debbie's, I'm Debbie's boyfriend, or like close to it. And so I had this strange 
this strange feeling of like I belong here more than all of these other people, but I but I at the same time I don't. And she was really glad to see me and came over and I'm standing there and everyone is staring at me like, why is he here? Why is she being affectionate to him? All of this is wrong. And so I started drinking. Oh, no. Because it was all I could, it was all I understood to do. Even though she was being cool with you, you were really uncomfortable. She was great. I was really uncomfortable standing there because I knew all of her friends and I knew them to be people who understood that I did not belong there. And they were like trying to communicate to her, like, what is he doing? What are you, why are you with him? Oh, Stop God. it. And I mean, I'm, and I'm seeing all this. I'm not imagining it. And she's like, what are you talking about? He's great. Like, we, yeah, we went to the, you know, he knows all about LBJ. And I, I knew that she was good and that, that the connection that we had could have survived this because we, she was growing out of that crowd anyway. She was headed on, off on her own path. We were all headed on our own path. This was all old stuff that we were capable of shedding. But I started to get drunk because I was terrified. And was, and, this, was this already at a point when you were well, – you said from the beginning you were cognizant that there was never going to be a one-beer night for you. Oh, no. And, and in a situation like this where it was just like, uh, you know, I'm going to show everybody – and I got drunk, and at a certain point, you know, drunk, I was like, I confronted Debbie and said, did you just invite me here to, to, uh, to embarrass me? She was like, what are you talking about? She had no idea my history with all these people. And because she sort of moved in that circle effortlessly, she didn't understand, she didn't see them as... Uh, as exclusive she didn't see them as people who would shun somebody for being fat or for being a nerd or for stealing their shoes or wearing a bow tie or wearing a bow tie like she she thought that the bow tie was charming she didn't understand that they saw it as a further example of how i did not understand how to fit in and was never going to and uh, and the the whole thing just the whole thing just turned into a disaster, oh, no. and you know and Debbie wanted she wanted us to go to get get away from those people and let's go upstairs and let's just and I was and I had I had so much baggage that I was the you know I was the one that that turned it into a a uh, turned it into a scene between us about how I was never gonna you know. I was never going to be somebody that she would like. And she was like, I'm not asking you to be anything. And it was, it was just terrible. All of this because I saw that stupid bicycle under an overpass today. I, I'm now I'm reliving 1988. Uh, the last year I possibly, uh, the oh, last God. year I would ever want to relive. Oh, I did so much stupid shit in 1988. <laughs> oh, oh, if I could, uh, let's see, if I could erase three years. <laughs> Do they have to be, do they have, should they be contiguous? No, I think you could erase three years out of your life. Okay, any three years, go. Oh man, that's a good one. Um, what's yeah? Well, I'm I'm not going to weasel word this. Um, I made a lot of terrible decisions in 1988. I f- I tried to level up as a grown up in a lot of ways that year and failed colossally in ways that I didn't actually learn much from. 
People always want you to learn from your mistakes. I think that's a lot of hagiography. I was just dumb. I was just really dumb. Uh, okay, now you pick one. I'll think of another one. Uh, let's see. 87, right? 87, 88, 88, 89. So I can't think of a better year to erase than 1988. If I could have a do-over. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1988 would be a really, oh, good, yeah. really good year to do over. And, you know, for, for my second choice, I kind of feel like, you know, maybe 2008. Oh, was that a bye year for you? Yeah, it was just like a year that I, I feel like I could have done, I could have done so much more in 2008. Yeah. I'm going to take, um, I was going to say 79. I think I'm going to go with 1980 and maybe 2009, mm. where I don't want to erase it, but I, I wish I could get a do-over on this. Yeah. Maybe 2000, maybe what I'm thinking 2008, it's actually 2009 is what I'm talking about. But, you know, I feel like, it, I feel like, we, should, I feel like we should agree on three years. I oh, feel yeah. like there's strength in numbers. So 88, 2009, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then we have to pick one more year. Why 1980. 1980 was more, uh, I was more a victim of circumstance in 1980, but that's the, 79 is when my mom remarried, nothing against, I mean, my mom was making the best decision she could. Yeah. She remarried this guy who turned out to be awful, and we moved to Florida from Ohio, so, you know, I, and then went to military school, a lot of the pop music was cocaine uh, a lot of it very memorable, you get your hollow notes and stuff, but 1980 for me was, was a very tough I mean, it was it was the year without a clutch. I mean, it just felt like all of the gears were grinding so hard. Where if every if everything in my life had been perfect, you know, uh, and like I was, if every if everything had had supported the kind of person I needed to be, it still would have been a hard year because I was thirteen. But given what I was up against, it's the year I kind of gave up on life in a lot of ways, in a way that would dog me definitely through high school. That I really feel like I didn't. I never completely came out of it, but I didn't really come out of it really until like I went to college mm-hmm. where I was kind of forced to like reboot. And I did have that fresh opportunity to, to be like, you know, and it helps to, it helps that I went to a school where it was okay to be a weirdo where actually I was not a weirdo. I was a pretty, you know, straight, normal kid, but that was anyway, that, that that's my 1980. I, to, you know, if we said, if you said the 80, 81 school year, mm-hmm. 1980 starting in September. Well, I, have no, I have no affection or attachment to that at all. Then no, let, I, I could join you for 8081. Let's do 8081. Let's do September to September, 8081. Mm-hmm. And I'm, then I'm with you 100%. That was seventh grade. 81. Yeah. And seventh grade was no, oh, oh, good. No. I, I, uh, I'm pleased to see some interest and uptake in our uh, thought technology around uh, junior high concierge services. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. There's an opportunity there. I, you know, and all of this, it feels like when I, when I talk about a do-over, mm-hmm. am I, I'm very curious to know like, whether that do-over would be, if, if, if we're going to allow it, if we're going to appeal to the, to the uh, parole board and say do-over on 8081 school year, are they going to say, okay, all, it's just alternate universe, John and Merlin. You're, yeah. you, there, it's still, it's still your, your dumb seventh grade brain. Right. And you just, you just get a, you know, we're just going to set you in motion like thirty seconds later. So it's a completely different version. It recent, but you're, yeah, you, you made a crack about this on Twitter the other day about 
wishing you could go back and like you know with all the stuff you know now I mean, I forget yeah right i mean that's the thing like if i could go back and be my own concierge mm. and you know and every week have a sit down with myself and say listen Here's I, I don't you, think we're gonna. I don't think we can allow that. Um, okay, I think right. it's a reset of the timeline. I think maybe reset can, of the timeline, or can you actually go back and inhabit your earlier self? I don't think so. I, well, uh. I think. I, well, here's the thing. I think you have to go back with the same knowledge and stuff that you had at the time. I think maybe you get to inhabit like uh, an African American janitor who gets to give you wisdom sometimes. Oh, oh, you're saying that you're saying that uh, that there's a Morgan Freeman character. Yes. What, let me put it to you this way, John. What if? What if in the timeline that actually that we know of that already existed, what if you already had gone back there and you just didn't listen to Morgan Freeman because you, you thought you had it all wired? Well, here's the problem. I know would, you, would a, you know if you were Morgan Freeman? I back know then. for a fact that no Morgan Freeman ever deigned to give me advice. I was starved for adult <laughs> advice. And, and every single like maybe, God. Maybe, maybe you should leave the bow tie at home. Every single God <laughs> character in my story was busy talking to another kid because I I'm you know I'm walking by in a brown tuxedo and they are you know and they're telling somebody to improve their golf swing in a, in a, in a completely different episode no one ever stopped me you know the and the and the teachers that I had that were good they didn't understand I mean a lot of them were younger teachers who who felt like the way they needed to approach me and and deal with me was to how do i put this like i was so precocious that 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 the adult response was often like you think you're pretty cool don't you oh you like you were you were like uh, they were like a little dog and you're like a rat you were like threatening to them yeah yeah and 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 their best you know they had the the best intentions which was to say Things aren't what you think they are. Uh, th- you know, the world isn't like you think it is. But the way that they approached me was always that, always in that tone of like, um, hey, Mr. Cool, why don't you sit down and listen once in a while and stop being, you know, like, it was very, they were trying to be teens. You know, they were trying to communicate with me. I, rem- I remember a te- this is going to sound terrible. But I had a high school teacher who pulled me aside. I may have told you about this. A high school teacher who pulled me aside and said, I was in the teacher's lounge the other day and we were talking about you. And I was like, really? What, what, saying what? And he said, well, you know, I was talking to the shop teacher about you and we both agreed that you, that you probably get a lot of tail. Am I right? Whoa, whoa. And I was a virgin. And yet, my response was, well, I mean, you know, I'm not one to talk out of school. And he said, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. Am I right? Am I right? Oh, that's so weird. And I was like, totally. I mean, you know, yes. And also, (laughs) and also, woo. And he was trying to make a connection with me, but he had read my bluster, and this uh, this was true of I think a lot of people at my school had read my bluster and my confidence and the fact that that uh, you know that I did have a lot of 
friends that uh, you know that I was a kid that teachers were talking about in the teachers lounge he had read all that incorrectly which is to say he read it as I was projecting it rather than seeing through it and so he you know he wanted to be my pal and yet in that moment like I couldn't have felt more estranged from him because now I'm now I am conscious of I I'm conscious of adults seeing me as a as a player mm-hmm. and I was desperate at that time for somebody to put their arm around my shoulder and say you're a virgin right cool so shh, just shh, like just cool it just it's fine it's good to be a virgin still and you can do that and just be fine and not and it's not that i walked around school uh, claiming that i wasn't right it was just right. that i had you know i was my dad introduced me to this concept when I was really young, big man on campus. And my dad was like, are you a big man on campus? And I was <laughs> BMO, like, BMOC. BMOC. And I was like, I don't know. What does that even mean? And he was like, big man on campus. You know, big man, you're the big guy. You're the guy on campus, the big guy, the one, the, the, you know, BMOC. And I was like, I guess I'll be, I guess, is that the expectation? I, I, you know, like the expectation was, that I yeah I guess that I'd be the BMOC and so I was, but anyway so that relationship and I had that kind of relationship with several teachers who were like who recognized that I was flailing, but what they saw was what I was projecting and not what I was, and no there was never that there was never that character that uh, uh, that came into the script that was like. Hey, I see what you really are, and right. it, and and it's fine. Because you know that, and that was one of the ways that which I, one of the primary reasons I didn't trust adults. They didn't seem to be any smarter than kids. I, you're making me feel like I'm realizing something here. Something, something I'm I'm really, really, really starting to get with my kid that I suspect goes to what you're talking about. I think it goes to stuff I, I've thought about in the past. Um, Kids of all kinds, you know, young, younger than adult aged people, if there's one thing most all of them have in common from a very, very, fairly early age, it's that they're very resistant to a frontal attack. Um, you know what I mean? So going, going at somebody head to head, like trying to confront a kid at one extreme end, confronting a kid on a lie, they're mostly going to say, no, I didn't, I didn't do that. Right. Or in this case, you know, and, and for me, like stuff like I, I actually will sometimes like, I'm trying to turbo to the solution way too early. So I'll, I will try to encourage my child to talk about how she feels about things. That is the last thing in the world that she wants to do. And in your case, what you're describing here is like, you know, they, they have this like first question that they're going to ask you, like whether that's about whether you're getting any pussy. (laughs) So bizarre or, or whatever, but they come at it. it, It's too on the nose. It's too, it really is the, the, the reaction gif for this would be some guy walking in taking off his jacket with the patches on the elbows and turning the seat around backwards so you can have a rap session. You just, you see that coming a mile off when you're a kid. And I think your defenses really pop up when that happens, when there is a question that you really want to be asked, but it's, it's not the question that they're asking. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah. The, the thing that I heard the most from 
the, from the two teachers that I respected the most was, and they both said it to me over and over, and they were friends with each other, and they were, you know, guys in their 30s who were well-read. They were the English teachers and so forth. And the thing I heard the most from them was, Roderick, you're such an asshole. And I felt a lot of pride in the fact that these two teachers basically would talk to me that way, like a, like sort of a peer. You're such an asshole. And they meant it to be kind of encouraging um, in the sense of like, you're, you're growing up now. You're not a brat. You're an asshole. But what it ultimately was, was, you know, it confirmed in me all these things that I was the most afraid of. I didn't want to be an asshole. Mm -hmm. I wasn't even trying to be an asshole. I was trying to, um, I was trying to be funny or I was trying to be smart or I was trying to be, you know, I was trying to be cool. And asshole was, um, I don't think that's on anybody's list of, of ambitions. And what, you know, what I, what I, what I wish that either one of those guys had done was to say, uh, you know, the, to say, Hey, look, this game we're playing, this thing that you're in, this school, this, these people, like this is small beer. Life is actually not anything like this. Right, right, right. There is a place for you in the world. And if, if anybody had ever said that, like there's no place for you here, clearly, but there is a place for you in the world. I would have, you know, I would have borne everything with so much more calm. Mm -hmm. And the panic was just this feeling of like, there's no, there's no place for me here. And I don't see any place for me in my parents' world. I don't see any place for me in the world of, of the newspaper. Except... Um, you know, except Satch Carlson every once in a while writes a column for uh, the Anchorage Daily News, and 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 I feel like I can, I could, I could see myself in in his column every once in a while, and it's like there's, I mean, there is light out there somewhere. Yeah, that's I probably wasn't putting that well. What, what was, well, yeah, what I was trying to get at though is like when you go at somebody, and you're going to be helpful. Right, you go in. You're gonna you're gonna be helpful. You're gonna come in, and you're gonna like you know say the thing that needs to be said and shake somebody up. And like the problem is that like what what they don't take fully into account is that you are much more. Maybe I'm being dismissive, but I I think you you kids are so much more vulnerable, mm. uh, and they they're so vulnerable, and they know that they're vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And the very last thing in the the world that they're going to do. Is going to be break down whatever shoddy defenses they have on that vulnerability. Okay, and so you kind of you. I mean, I, I, now this sounds like an after school special, but you kind of need to not 
It's like almost like treat the kid like a cat. Like just don't go up and flip it over and start rubbing its tummy. You got to go real slow and you've got to just spend some time with that person until that you have credibility with them where, you know, maybe you should learn a little bit more about who they are as a person before you come dive bombing in with a solution because that's just going to be more off-putting. You know, and, and then on top of it all, calling somebody an asshole. An asshole is not what you call somebody that you want to reform. It's what you want to call somebody who's a lost cause. Well, and that's exactly that you hit, you hit the nail on the head. That is what they that is what they were communicating to me. Like, we can't reach you. You're going to you're going to. And, 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 and it was like, ad- any effort would be wasted. But it was admiring. You know, this was the crazy thing. It was admiring. Like you are going to, you know, like what they were saying was you are already on a trajectory far away from here. But, and, and so all they could say was asshole as they were kicking me out the door. <laughs> um, and there was a 50, 50, there was a 50% chance that that trajectory was going to go right through juvenile hall, right into jail. Um, and there, and you know, and I don't think they wanted to be wrong and say, you've got a bright future. And then I end up in jail. Oh, well, it's kind of almost like their way of saying kudos. Like you wanted to screw it up and you screwed it up real good. Yeah. But what I, but like what you are saying, I mean, I'm in a very, I'm in a very interesting place with my daughter right now, which is that she, when, when I push her a little bit too much to, to, to sound out a word or to try to climb over the wall herself or to, you know, whenever I say, you know, try again. If I say try again three times, she surrenders. And and we get caught in a dynamic where I say, well, I mean, you can't just quit. We have to try. We have to try again. And there's nothing wrong with trying again. There's nothing wrong with trying and not succeeding, but. It's important to try multiple times. And she says, no, I can't. I can't do it. And gets very emotional. And, I, and I'm thinking back to my own relationship with my dad, who in those situations was, would get mad and would say, God damn it, get up and do it again. And I don't, and I, I don't want to be there. And mm-hmm. I do do this thing that you're saying where I'm like, let's talk about your feelings. Mm. Here and she's just like, "Fuck you." Talk I feel like I, I feel like a process server when I do <laughs> yeah, that. The reaction talk, is so negative. Talk about my feelings. Go to hell. And eventually, what we end up doing is sometimes we are just we just sit on the sidewalk for thirty minutes, not trying, not uh, you know, and crying, and not succeeding. Uh, my, and my parenting is not succeeding. And I see all kinds of parents who, you know, uh, whose, whose philosophy is, well, if she doesn't want to do it, then, uh, then move on, get an ice cream cone. And, you know, and I don't, I, and I don't often admire the results of that style of parenting. And so I'm not, I'm absolutely at a, at a, an impasse and I'm very moved by your, by your insight into the fact that she knows that she's, she knows what her vulnerabilities are and she knows that those are the last things that she wants to reveal. Uh Like that feels very native to me 
that your vulnerabilities are not what you want to probe, not the things you and but, and and to surrender in those moments as she does is very defensive against failure, obviously, but also defensive against um against my involvement and right you know she's such a small baby still that it that all of this is i mean there the, the, she's not she's not strategizing it it's just coming out this way but i feel like i'm i feel like i really want to 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 try and not carve big ruts in the ground right and yes uh and i mean this is this is a huge process for me that i I struggle with all the time but if you think about how often with us with anybody but especially with a little kid what so you get you crying and what is crying crying is surrender crying is when you kind of have something that's so emotional that you have like a buffer overrun or whatever like there's just too much stuff here and you you kind of I don't say give up but you know what I mean it's like you you've kind of emotionally reached the end of your rope and that's how it comes out but what is the emotion that so frequently precedes crying it's anger like think about how at least in my in our case at our house like crying is almost always preceded with anger and i think a lot of times that anger is unconsciously like unknowingly worrying about that vulnerability that that you have like for you and me we'll try again to do this thing well you know they're not going to die even if they fall but they don't but they're also you as you you know as we're as we're, i think agreeing the the, the vulner, vulnerability part is there the, the improbable upside down approach that i'm trying to really think about and i do not have a handle on this yet whether it's for my daughter or for anybody to junior high or anybody else is that i do really feel like very few things are successful in the long run when they're based on fear and depleting security. Like that can be when you're a grown up, like there's stuff you got to do and you go, wow, I better take care of this. Like you have the equipment to deal with that. But especially when you're younger and you have all those vulnerabilities that you're acutely aware of, like I just try to avoid anything that even unintentionally becomes less secure rather than more secure. Because I feel like I'm being supportive when I say, hey, you know, you can do this. Or I, you know, I, but what I'm really doing is kind of making it about me. And I'm kind of making, you know, and I'm like, here's my expectations for what you can do. When like what you described, like sitting on the sidewalk, that's the thing to do. And it's the hardest thing in the world. Again, shh, right? There's this time where you've got to go like, you know what? I, all of my words are not going to do anything to add to this. And in a way, I'm probably not I'm not aware of. I am making this more perilous because now she sees me being nervous and trying to make her feel better. Well, why is he doing that? Well, I must have done something wrong or something's bad. You know what I mean? It's like our reactions to how people do stuff in the world ends up having a much huger impact than what we think or what we believe or even what we say. You know what I mean? It's Mm -hmm. how we act is what the, the supportiveness sometimes is to just let them, you know, you don't want your kid to turn into a, you know, an idiot or an asshole. <laughs> but I think about things I've said to her that I thought were very inspiring and now I really regret. I've said things in the past like, I know you can be a better person than this. And oh. I think, oh my gosh, what a horrible per- what a horrible thing to say. Huh. I'm trying to say I really do believe in you and I know you're a good person. But like, because to me, that's a question I ask myself. Is this the person that I want to be? Well, I'm a grown man. That's a good question for me to ask myself. Yeah. Not a great question. It feels supportive, but it's not. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I don't know how much my parents recognized themselves in me. 
it didn't seem to me like they did recognize themselves very much in me until maybe later. Um, and, and watching Marlo, I'm trying not to recognize myself in her because I don't want to put my own struggles on her. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to see her struggles as extensions of mine or or recapitulations of some family line. So hard not to do. It's hard not to do. And and uh and so I'm just watching her and saying like what are you going to what are you going to struggle with? And um you know, and I also want her to stop yelling in restaurants about <laughs> stuff about her poop you know so there are things there are certain things where i just say concrete goals where i just say no you do not yell about poop in a mexican restaurant (laughs) but but beyond that like do i care if she's a soccer player or not no do i do i want her to learn that if she tries something and it doesn't work that someone else will step in and do it for her no. Do I want her to learn that if she tries something and it doesn't work, everything comes to a screeching halt and everybody stares at her until she figures it out? No. So, you know, but but I've never I've never helped somebody learn how to do things like this before, you know? Somebody who wasn't, I mean, who's not a peer. I mean, she's right. she's like from another planet. Right. Her I'm not her, her, her skill to- set is real different uh than ours. I'm not teaching her to drive. I'm teaching her not to eat glass. <laughs> and, you know, and I don't want to, I don't want to fill her little heart with fear. And I don't want to, I don't want to um, make her embarrassed about herself. And, you know, and so far, so far we're doing a great job. Her mother and I are, are I feel like we're, we're doing good. But this is a new this is a new world where she is asserting herself and the only way she the only power she has is the power to um you know it's not the only power but it's very interesting to watch her learn that she has the power to not do something or the power to not like the power to not try mhm especially is, if she knows it drives you crazy it's a huge power mhm and I used the power to not try. That was one of my major powers in my family, the power to not try. That's your superpower. It was my superpower. And the power to not try is incredibly frustrating for people, for other people, because it isn't, you know, it isn't that you're trying and fucking up. It is that you just aren't even willing to try. And that, drove my my own people to distraction and it caused me so much additional pain and suffering in my own life over and above the the pain and suffering of just failing at something and i don't want i i, I don't want her to have to to endure that the same way i did um but i have to you know i have to s- step back and say she's not reliving your life she's not you know she her her challenges are different so i uh i sit and talk to her 
but I'm going to start doing that now with this, uh, this other understanding that she is not that, that no, no one in their right mind and particularly not a four year old is going to be unguarded about her, the things that she knows are her, her greatest vulnerabilities. And that just seems that makes so much sense when you say it, but of course you don't, that's not your expectation, right? I mean, I, I would think uh, so much parenting advice is, is predicated on the idea that your child is an open book and that they're going to just, <laughs> they're going to talk about their fucking feelings. The worst thing in the world. I feel like such a, fa- I feel like such a, fa- such a total failure at that. I thought <laughs> maybe uh, I, I just watched too many TV shows. I really thought it was going to be something where I rap lightly on the door and stick my hand and I go, <laughs> Hey, do you want to talk? <laughs> hey, Hey, sweetie. You know, the way for us to establish really good communications between father and daughter just to start talking about your feelings when you're four. Yeah, yeah. you know, I was thinking maybe I'd uh, come into your uh, room, which is the only place where you feel really safe from the rest of the world, and I'd come in and confront you about your uh, vulnerabilities and yeah, see what just, I can do to pitch in. Just sit on the edge of your bed and... Just rap. And, you, know, you know what? I'll just be a, I'll just be a, a friendly ear. <laughs> While you talk about all of the, and you know what, and maybe even I'll make some suggestions. Maybe I'll tell you a little bit how I'm broken inside. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> Good talk, honey. Good talk. Oh, oh worst. 